Welcome to this MTech Access podcast. At MTech Access, we offer a complete global market access service from strategy through to implementation. In the UK, all our work is underpinned by authentic NHS insights. Our in-house experts work closely with a national network of associates who occupy strategic, operational and clinical roles within the NHS. Leaders in their field, their knowledge and experience helps MTech Access to be as close to the front line of care delivery as possible. To support our clients through the COVID-19 crisis and beyond, we launched this webinar series. Each week, we bring together two experts from the NHS to briefly present what is going on in their part of the health service. We have now converted this series into a podcast, so you can listen in as and when you like. Please subscribe to the podcast or follow our LinkedIn company page for more information. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the first MTech Access COVID-19 weekly update. Um, I'm Tom Clark. I'm one of the directors of the NHS Insights and Interaction team at MTech Access. Um, And it's a privilege to have you all joining us today uh, with our two NHS experts here. So just a bit of background. Why are we here, I suppose? What are we doing? Um, We, in the work that we do on a daily basis working with the NHS, are acutely aware of the pace of change that's happening at the moment. Uh, Huge amounts of, of things going on that probably many people never expected to change in the NHS, lots of things that people hoped would change in the NHS. Um, and it's, it's a time of unprecedented uh, transformation, I suppose, uh, something we're, we're very involved with. We're also conscious that our, a lot of our colleagues from industry are at a time when they're unable to, to engage with the NHS, um, obviously grounded, stuck at home, um, doing a lot of desk work, but keen to understand what's what's really going on out there in the world. So we we feel a, a bit of a responsibility um, having having relationships on both sides to try and join the dots a, a little bit and help our clients stay in touch with what's going on so that when they're able to get out there again, there's there hasn't been a big lag in momentum. And also also from the NHS perspective, um, obviously a lot of our clients in um, are. are bringing new treatments and, and therapies to market. And in order to make, make sure that those are getting to patients when they need to, we want to make sure that, the, that there's no sort of gap in understanding between the NHS and industry when, when everyone's remobilized, as it were. So that's why we're here. Um, we are going to be doing a, an update every week, weekly, because of the speed of change. Uh, we're going to be calling on our, our NHS faculty members, two of whom we've got with us today. Uh, our faculty work in a whole range of roles across the NHS so every week we're going to have two different perspectives from across the NHS on what's going on so over the course of the next few weeks months however long this this might all go on uh, we'll give a really good breadth of understanding of how how COVID's impacting on the NHS hopefully as a result if you're joining us regularly you'll get a real good uh, depth of understanding of, of everything that's changing and you'll be well equipped to have the right conversations at the time that you can uh, get back to to the NHS. So joining us today we've got Mike Proctor who is the former chief executive of York Hospitals Foundation Trust and interim COO of the North Cumbria Integrated Care Partnership and Hilary Snowden who's the the management lead of two primary care networks in the northeast. They're going to be sharing some of their recent experiences and, and thoughts around everything that's that's going on at the moment. So, enough of me. Let's uh, let's have a chat with our experts. So, firstly, coming to you, Hilary. Um, 
Can you just give us a few minutes on what you've seen happening in the NHS over the last few weeks in, in sort of the primary care world? Hi, everybody. Um, yeah, certainly monumental change over the last four weeks. Um, I don't think anybody probably at the beginning of March would have envisaged primary care working at scale as it is now. Um, and I think it's a real defining moment for primary care networks and federations. Um, I think certainly I've seen, you know, how in, in families you have um, sort of like relations you don't speak to, but you're not quite sure why, because something's happened 20 years ago, and but nobody can remember exactly what, but you still don't speak to them. This, in a similar way as primary care or the elements of primary care a bit like that and suddenly what had been an issue that nobody could think of why they didn't want to work together all that's disappeared and suddenly we have people working together that probably used a lot of excuses in terms of the structures that's happening that are in the NHS like IT we can't possibly work with you because of we've got a different clinical system that has just completely disappeared um, and practices I think for the first time are really not just looking at them as autonomous individual practices but that they have a collective responsibility for the wider population um, and I think from our perspective in, in West Northumberland that might not have happened without PCNs being established and the fact that we've spent the last 10 months or so really working at relations and uh, working better together and that has really enabled and facilitate what we, we're having to go through now. And I think a couple of changes, I mean there's been a 180 degree change in the use of technology in the Probably four weeks ago, people saw primary care as very much a face-to-face -face service. That isn't the norm any longer. Um, and that's created challenges, hugely different ways of working for people. Um, so that there's those aspects. I think also um, an appreciation um, that one size does not fit all and I think there's still a tension between what's coming down nationally and the expectation that that will work regardless of where you are in the country. So the relationships that you have with your clinical commissioning group are really key at the moment in the sense that um, some of them are assuming that whatever the sense is saying that is what has to be implemented locally, whereas others are being very pragmatic um, and saying what's, what's needed on a local level. So, for example, where I am in West Northumberland, we've got several um, hot sites being developed, all slightly different because of the rurality and what works for different practices. And I think the only other thing I'll probably say in terms of, at the moment, this key thing is that good clinical leadership is absolutely critical. Um, and I think those relationships that clinical leaders have really worked at over the last few months 
um, are absolutely critical in terms of getting people on board, people being seen as credible leaders, um, and it's not just managers saying that you've got to do X, Y, Z. Brilliant. Thank, thank you, Hilary. Uh, and so, similar question to you, Mike. What What have you seen in the in the last few weeks in the NHS? Um, I've seen some extraordinary things that I thought I'd never see. Actually, to be honest, I, I, I'll try and give you a sort of um, a perspective from a single organisation because people talk about the numbers, and uh, I just thought it might be useful just to talk a little bit about the organisation I've just been working with as chief operating officer which I went over, I did four and a half months over there, and troubled organization, to be honest. So really small, so it's only got 550 beds, uh, two sites, uh, two hospitals that are 40 miles apart, um, really, really struggling in terms of capacity, so working on 98% bed occupancy constantly. 25% um, of the beds uh, in both hospitals were taken up by patients with a length of stay of more than 21 days. Um, based on the sort of difficulties of services outside hospital. Um, it was the norm every day, actually, to run out of beds and come into, into the hospital to have 15 or 20 patients in the ED department just waiting for somebody else to be discharged so that they could move up to a, to a bed. And some of those patients were in 12, 15, 18, sometimes 24 hours in the emergency department. So a really troubled organisation. An emergency department that was built to sort of look after a maximum of 30 people, regularly having 60 people in that department. So this is pre-COVID. Um, really troubled. Um, I had a sort of, I talked to Tom about this, I had a sort of seminal moment on the sort of 9th of March. Uh, when I came into work and uh, our deputy chief executive, who was a GP, um, public health doctor, enormous experience working for Medicine Sans Frontier abroad, looking at sort of Ebola, worked in real crisis points. And he'd been he'd been localizing and looking at the, the stuff that Imperial had been putting out in terms of uh, the numbers. And he'd made it relevant uh, to what was happening in North Cumbria. And the numbers he came out with, my sort of jaw hit the floor, really, because what he's talked about is that what we'd learned from from sort of uh, China and, and other places that uh, once COVID hits, then 80% um, of people that are infected by it can self-care. About 14% require um, hospital admission, 5% require ICU, and 1% die. Um, and uh, you can look at the unmitigated curve. The pe people talk about the peak of the curve. So what would happen if we did nothing? And the government worked on scenarios and the Imperial worked on scenarios going from 70% of the population being affected down to sort of 1% of the population being affected. I'm not going to give you the numbers on 70% because they are, they are unbelievable. Well, they, they are believable. But if the population of North Cumbria, 20% of people were infected, the attack rate was 20%, then um, that would mean that, um, that 60,000 people were infected uh, in the North Cumbria population. It's a population of 300,000. And 8,400 people would require hospital admission. And 3,000 people would require intensive care. I have 12 beds. 12 beds. Um, 
and the the way that the the the, the you know the infection would work would be that 20 percent of people that were going to be infected would be affected 20 percent would be in one week on week 10 and weeks 9 and 11 there'd be 15 percent of the population either side of that so you know 50 percent of the population over a three-week period which would mean 1500 people in a three-week period require critical care beds so you know, it's just mind-blowingly frightening in terms of what was happening, which explains the government response and it explains some of the local response. I was asked uh, in order to prepare, uh, you know, Mike, we need we need 150 beds by Friday, and I thought they were having a laugh given the circumstances that we were looking at and we were at 98% occupancy, and some amazing things have happened because based on that. As Hillary's talked about, the entire clinical community came together, and some of the things that we've been wanting to implement and and sort out for years, particularly around social care and moving patients on, those have been mandated by the government. And I'll tell you now, it's so so North Cumbria is still coping. So North Cumbria, the last time I spoke to them, had 120, 130. Um, uh, COVID-19 positive patients in hospital requiring care and they had got about 20 people in critical care. So we've doubled and tripled the, the ITU capacity and we're managing with that at the moment because obviously the government's actions that have taken place in terms of social isolation and all those things are absolutely, instead of having a huge peak, we're creating a plateau. How long that plateau is going to go on, I, I, I really don't know. And, uh, and and how we get out of it is a question that's frequently asked at the government at the moment, isn't it? And and there are dangers of second and third waves once we relax uh, the measures that we've taken. But it's been a, it's been a fantastic response when when all this was happening in China, and it came on the news that the, you know the Chinese had opened a thousand bed hospital. We all thought, well, that chance of us ever achieving that until it came our way. And what have we done? We've opened a 4,000 bed a hospital and we're opening multi-sites uh, all over the country. And I would not have thought that that was possible, uh, but it's been proved to be possible. And it's and 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 we'll come on to talk about in a second or in a few minutes about what we want to keep. But but partnership working, as Hillary's identified, you know, we've talked through, you know, uh, integrated care systems and all those types of things about people working as partners. The relationship side of that has accelerated hugely. There's going to be some golden nuggets in this. There's going to be, this is a tragedy for obviously for people that um, that that are going to lose yet I mean family members and are going to be ill themselves. It's really really difficult. But there's going to be some opportunities that arise out of this that the health and social care system have got to grab hold of and keep because there are some great things that have been happening, which, which I'm enormously grateful for, but it's, it's been fantastic being part of it, actually. And I've never seen morale as high as it is at the moment. You know, there's, you know there are, obviously people are, are worried about you know, PPE and all sorts of things, but everybody is just absolutely working together. Long may it last. Brilliant. Thank, thank you, Mike. So, I mean, obviously, there's this huge amount that's, that's changing at, you know, every level of the NHS, right, from 
from policy levels up to down down to the front line. So, Hilary, just thinking about within primary care and all mm -hmm. everything that's been changing, obviously lo lots of that is very nitty-gritty stuff around practicalities and some of it is, is more strategic. Of the things that have changed, uh, could you pick out a couple of the sort of the most striking things and, and just comment a little bit on whether you expect the change to last or not? Um, I think certainly changes in terms of, I think, an appreciation of the need for well-being of your staff um, is become much more important and I would like that to continue. So not just on the physical aspects, but linked to what Mike said about that morale, about really looking after your teams and your workforce. Um, and that's not just about pay, but it's actually, you know, just, you know, I know several practices have got um, wobble rooms now. So when somebody is feeling a bit, ooh, they can go in that room and maybe do a bit of meditation, yoga. So I think the appreciation of well-being of your workforce and how to do that is absolutely key. Um, the joint working, I think what we've got to do is prevent people going back into their silos. And I think that's right across the system. So not just about individual practices, but making sure that community nursing doesn't become isolated from practice nursing, that it actually becomes a nursing team. And it doesn't matter who's employing them or whatever. It's about actually the world hasn't fallen apart by the fact you've let your staff work with another organization staff. Um, one of the, we had, we have 14 practices in our locality and 12 of those are in a PCN and two of the practices decided not to be part of a PCN. When we were um, thinking about our response to COVID, the terminology we used was really important. We had to be really careful. So we were very specific in saying, this isn't a PCN meeting. This is a locality response meeting. And we had to make sure that we had those other two practices on board. And if somebody had said to me five weeks ago, you're going to have 29 people on a screen on a Zoom covering 14 practices and they'll all behave perfectly and everybody will put their hand up when they want to speak and it'll be very productive. I would never have believed it. And somebody has fed back to our clinical director and says, because of those meetings, and the fact they're now seeing everybody, they feel far, they feel part of a bigger partner family. And that is a really powerful thing to say, and I would hate to lose that. I think the other thing is, although we've gone through a system where it's been all face-to-face -to, -face to practically non-face-to-face, -face, I wouldn't want to continue with that con completely, because I think there is a need for face-to-face with between GPs and a lot of GPs said have, have said they don't want to lose because that's their job and they would hate to, to lose that completely. But I think it's a real opportunity to not go back to everything being done face to face. So, so, and I think, so do, you th do, do you think care delivery is going to change dramatically as a result of this? I think so. And I would hope so because I think 
there's an appreciation about people realizing that they can there's an element of saying actually i can look after myself and i don't have to uh, you know think uh, the instant the default position being let's go to the walking center or let's go to the gp um i have a concern though in that um there's a lot of people who are going to be quite ill from non-covid things later on and that's starting to come through now because people have sort of or delayed and we're just starting to see that increase now in primary care saying put that off as long as possible it's we need a response thinking how we're going to you know cope with that that's another curve coming and i think the only other thing i would like uh, think in terms of going forward is performance management we have done so much and as Mike very eloquently describes the things we've achieved that have been achieved over the last few weeks has all been because you've let people do things and not be just sort of strangled by information governance um all all those things and the performance management performance management needs to be an enabler so we need to make sure that going forward we identify what's enabled all these things to happen and how do we ensure that that gets carried forward brilliant thank you so so mike coming to you what what else can you add about you know what what's really impacted you and and that piece about the lasting change what do you see going forward yeah so lots of things really i i, I guess one of the things um one of my comments would be i, I always used to talk to all my direct reports and instruct them never start a sentence with my proctor said all right and, and I'm, so, I'm going to plead for that for this audience but because one of the things that i've noticed is that uh, ccgs have become irrelevant in this whole thing um the 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 work that's delivering the action on this is provider driven and whether that's providers in primary care secondary care in social care it's providers that are doing this and, and, and you can't I can't see a role uh, for CCGs in, in what we're currently, do, currently doing they're scratching around to find one but I don't think they, they are able to do so so that's it's just a comment related to, related to that and the other thing I just wanted to mention briefly was it just to follow up what Hillary said about um, people with other conditions you know one of the judgments about our success through COVID-19 is that is that in overall terms we don't have an increase in avoidable mortality um, and that's that's not just COVID-19 that's in cancer and all sorts of other things because we could absolutely get um, completely focused on this but you know illnesses still go on and I know some cardiologists that are really concerned about some of their patients that might normally turn up to A&E that are avoiding doing that at the moment so I think that that's something that we need to sort of be, be mindful of in terms of lasting change, um, I think the partnership stuff. I think you know it's, it's as, as Hillary said earlier. It's it, you know a lot of the ice has been broken. People are working together in a really positive way. Uh, trust has been developed and built up. Um, people are valuing other parts of the system actually more than they ever had, and I think that's an, that's an important aspect of, of developing trust. Particularly massive changes around social care. So hospitals have been waiting rooms for patients 
before they go somewhere else. Acute hospitals, there's, there's waiting rooms and wards full of waiting pe people waiting for some other type of care to be provided. That's all gone. It's all gone at the moment. And I know that's because the government stuck loads of money in the system, but we're finding ways to actually move people out of hospital, which probably does them damage in any case. So a long length of acute uh, stay in acute hospital is detrimental to patients' good and independence. And we've cut through all that. So as soon as a patient is, we don't talk about medically fit for discharge anymore, we talk about patients being medically optimised. And then they're out within hours. They're out within hours. And there is, you know, some real risk management taking hold. So, you know, when loads of people that were on four times a day visits are being told that we can only have two, so that other people can have two as well. And then families are asked, being asked to sort of, uh, you know, to need to make good the difference. Some really interesting sort of changes around that, but it's getting people out of hospital where they don't need to be. Outpatients, it's the, it's the opposite end to, to, to what Hillary's been talking about, about, about sort of virtual uh, consultations. For donkey's years, I've been trying to persuade consultants that they don't need to see everybody face to face. But they've always insisted that they need to put their hands on people, you know, and, and, and you know, there's other places that have been successful in avoiding doing that. All of a sudden, consultants don't want to see patients face to face. And actually, patients don't want to be seen face to face either. And in a community like North Cumbria, where people are sometimes traveling 50 and 60 miles for a five minute follow up appointment with a consultant um, uh, to be told, yeah, you, you, it sounds like you're fine. I'll see you again in six months time. It's absolutely the wrong way to actually manage patients. And, pay, and consultants can offer far better advice to a greater number of GPs and about a greater number of patients if we do it virtually. So I think that's one of the, 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 the significant things. And I'm going to be a bit cheesy in terms of lasting change. The final one I want to talk about is that people are looking after each other in society. You know, increase you know, awareness of your neighbour, an, an elderly relative or something like that. And people are looking out, the vast majority of people are looking out for each other. You know, these things always bring out the best in people. And, and for a small proportion, it brings out the worst in some people as well. But for the vast majority of the population, there's a greater sense of society and community. And I hope that doesn't disappear because that's really important as we as we go forward. Brilliant. Thank you. And we've got a, a couple of minutes left. So something that's, that's sort of come out for both of you there is a bit around, um, you know, changing priorities and what have you. So just as a, as a final word, just to I wonder if each of you could just give a, a sentence or two on in six months time or whenever the NHS is starting to get back to normal, how do you think they'll start to deal with the backlog and those, those sort of forgotten patients that are being missing out at the moment? Well, um, I think it's about redefining a new normal. Um, when we come out the other side of this, it, it, it's not going to go back. And part of that normal is going to be, you know, how do we how, how do we sort of like look after this group of people with comorbidities in a much more patient-centered, focused way? And I mean that in terms of everybody working together, um, remove the silos. Um, and also, I think, in terms of there's going to be a huge push on on mental health as well. Um, 
if we go into recession now, then actually we've got another huge number of cohorts of people who are going to require a lot of assistance and support. So I think we need to redefine what normal primary care is, what normal health care is, and what the expectations are. I think it, we really have to redefine expectations on from ourselves as patients, our expectations of each other, and I think our expectations, government's expectations of the health system as well. Brilliant. Thank you. And same question to you, Mike. Yeah, um, so um, we're going to have a huge backlog of work to do. I, I see the NHS uh, having to focus on urgent and emergency work yet to me for a good period after this. So yeah. what that means for some of the other elective work that we do, you know, the quality of life stuff, you know, I suspect that the private sector is going to play a big part in trying to get us back on track with some of those things. Um, but depending on how long things go on for, depending what deterioration we've seen in performance target, depends whether, whether there's, a, there's a, a less emphasis on, on delivery of, um, of actually performance targets per se and that we have a different opportunity to actually look at health outcomes um, as, as our drivers rather than specific uh, measuring specific parts of a, of a patient pathway which do nothing for actually system working. So, you know, it, it's, it, uh, nobody knows uh, where it's, where it's going to end up, but I, I think there's, there's going to be a sort of a difference in terms of workload that the NHS has to undertake. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you both. And uh, I suppose one one question in my mind, uh, a one word answer to CS3 to Easter, maybe it's a small topic to address. Do you think this, this could be the uh, the start of truly integrated care? One word answer, Hilary? <laughs> Hopefully. Mike? I, I'm going to be I'm going to be optimistic. I'm going to say yes, I think it is. Well, thank you both very much, and thank you to everyone that's been been watching and listening. Uh, hopefully, that was as insightful for you as it was for me. Um, that was sort of the organisational view, I suppose, of, of COVID. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be inviting guests to look from more clinical perspectives and looking at kind of the finance and, and commissioning elements and, and how that sort of that side of things has changed as well. Uh, so we're going to be doing these regularly now, uh, every Friday at 2 p.m. Uh, this week was a slight exception for Easter. Uh, hopefully you'll, you'll join us again. Um, if you've got any questions as a follow-up from this, please submit them via nhsinsights at mtechaccess.co.uk and feel free to direct uh, colleagues to this and the recording is going to be av available after the event for anyone that, that has missed out. So thanks for joining us and hopefully we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please do subscribe for future episodes. If you'd like to find out more about our work with the NHS or how we can support your market access strategy, please email info at mtechaccess.co.uk.